You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Hey, welcome back to OnlineCalvary.com. We are so glad that you joined us. And let me tell you a little bit about what's been happening at my house. So my eight-year-old daughter, Olivia, had asked me if we could redo her room, repaint, kind of reorganize things. She just got a big girl bed. So it's, you know, we're, we're kind of doing a bunch of things there. So her and I went to the paint store. We bought some paint samples. We put, you know, painted some squares on the wall. She picked the one that she liked. And then we did the process of taking everything out of her room, literally everything out of her room, putting it all in a giant pile and began the process of going through what we were gonna keep, what we were gonna throw out, what we were gonna donate. And my daughter was asking me as we're moving everything out, she said, dad, why do we do it this way? Why can't we just organize it when it's all in my room? And I said, because your mom and I watched the show Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And I don't know if you've watched tidying up with Marie Kondo. But if you haven't, you've been completely wasting your time in quarantine. And Marie Kondo, tidying up with Marie Kondo, is the only show that I have ever binge watched besides season one of Daredevil. And the show is simple. If you haven't seen it, if you have, then you're going to enjoy just me talking about it. If you haven't seen it, this is going to be an education. So here's how it works. Marie shows up at someone's house with a translator because she doesn't really speak very much English, and so they have someone that tra translates from Japanese to English. She teaches them how to get rid of all of the clutter in their house, but not just clutter. You see, for couples, the clutter is the root problem as to why they can't communicate. For parents, the clutter is what's keeping them from loving their children. For kids, the clutter is, is hurting their parents and tidying up is the physical gesture that that to thank their parents for their hard work and sacrifice. Now, make no mistake, and you might be thinking, oh, it's like Hoarders. No, it's not like Hoarders. Hoarders is a show about the spectacle of the mess. Tidying up with Marie Kondo is a cleansing as we walk into the future. And I'm telling you, you will cry. You will, and I don't know how they do it, but when I watched the episode of the guy who had 167 pairs of sneakers, he crept into my heart. And, and honestly, and, I, and somehow you identify with this guy that owns way too many shoes. And I'm telling you, I watched three episodes and I went through my entire closet. Today, my closet is a palace where kings and dignitaries could dine. Um, the other, and then I finished watching the four episodes. We went through our entire kitchen and tidied up. I started going on YouTube and finding out how Marie Kondo folds things. How do you fold socks in the KonMari method? Uh, how do you fold things that aren't exactly square? I, I, I'm telling you, why? Because I can't go back to the old way of living like an animal. I have to do it anyway. So um, this is how bad it got is that uh, one Saturday we had breakfast and then we started cleaning our entire kitchen. We started going through everything. And uh, so we started this, this whole project and I, you know, I wasn't even listening to my kids because I was so deep in the project. And then our kids started getting like really cranky and tired and they start, you know, they, they were like kind of getting weird with us. And, and, and I'm like, Carrie, what is wrong with our kids? And, and my wife said, oh no, I know why they're tired. And I said, why? 
And I said, we forgot to make them lunch and it's 5 p.m. We just been in. Anyway, that's the, that's, that's the power of Marie Kondo. It just, it's gonna take over your life. But here's the thing. This is what influence does. It's the power of influence. And, and too many times we fail to see how important influence is because everyone is influencing and everyone is being influenced. Now we are influenced by our surroundings. We're influenced by the people that we listen to, by the people that we look up to. We all have a circle of influence of people whose lives we speak into. And as Christians, we're called to impact and influence the world around us. Jesus described it this way. He talked about being salt and light in the world. Why? Because salt is a preservative. Salt adds flavor. Light dispels darkness and brings clarity to those who need to take a step forward when all of us need to take a step forward. And that's what Micah, the prophet, is calling us to do. To be salt and light, he doesn't say it quite that way, but it's unmistakable that he's calling us to be influencers and leverage whatever influence, position that we have for the purpose of good. And we're gonna see how God has been influencing, how he's challenging us to influence for the purposes of his kingdom. So we're gonna actually start in Micah chapter three. We've been in this series called Viewfinder and we've been looking at this little Old Testament book called Micah, but we're gonna start in chapter three in verse one. Here's what we read. It says, and I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh for the cauldron. Then they will say to the Lord, but he will not hear them. And he will even hide his face from them at a time because they have been evil in their deeds. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention Micah, in the beginning of this chapter, calls out the rulers. These are the political leaders. Why? Because they were ripping people off and skinning them literally to the bone. They were unmerciless. They were, they were unmercifully oppressing the people. And then when an invading army comes in, he's like, listen, your prayers aren't going to be answered because the reason is the invading army is sent by God to deal with them. And so Micah turns his attention now, he says, and, it's, and by the way, it's not just the political leaders, it's also the religious leaders. And that's what he says in verse, uh, going, starting from verse five. And he says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people astray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare for war against them, putting nothing in their mouths. Therefore, you shall have night without vision, darkness without divination, you, you're, the sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be dark before them. So the seers shall be ashamed. The diviners abashed. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. For truly I am full of power by the spirit of God and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now hear this you heads of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests pay, uh, teach for pay and her prophets divine for money. Yet 
they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple like bare hills of the forest. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, Micah's indictment of the religious leaders is that they were telling everyone simply what they want to hear. Hey, we're not going to be invaded. Everything is fine. Don't worry about what the doomsdayers are saying. Everything is great. There's only going to be peace. Listen, and, and this is what they just kind of went on as we read, and it's just in such vivid language that whatever you're doing is okay. God isn't going to judge. God doesn't judge anything that you do. And Micah contrasts that position with his role, and here's what he says. I am full of the power of the spirit of the Lord and justice and might. Listen, a spiritual leader who only tells you what you want to hear doesn't care about you. If they cared, what they would do is speak the truth and speak it in a loving way. And, and I'll tell you, and I, I've shared this in the past, that I am very concerned about a generation of pastors and leaders who only want to preach positivity. And listen, if you just want to preach positivity, I just want to say that's not being a pastor. That's being a motivational speaker. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with being a motivational speaker. Just don't confuse it with being a preacher of the gospel. Part of a pastor's role, part of the role of any kind of spiritual leader is to confront the sin in all of our lives, to name what we're doing wrong and invite us on the journey of repentance and transformation. And when it happens and we're open to correction, it's beautiful. And when we ignore it, it's ugly and God has to get our attention a different way. And that's what now Micah talks about in chapter four. You'll see it in verse one. He says this, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the tops of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. If you pause there and give me your attention. What I love about this is that Micah gives us this picture of the kingdom of God ruling on earth. It's a picture of justice. It's a picture of peace. It's a picture of prosperity for all people. It's a picture of people going to Jerusalem to the temple to gain the wisdom of God. And the result of them gaining the wisdom of God is that they won't learn war anymore. That's why the weapons of war no longer have any value. So what are you going to need a sword for? Instead, you turn the sword into a tool that tills the ground. And then there's this Beautiful phrase in verse four that everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one will make them afraid. I, I love that phrase for two reasons. One is because it's a line that President Washington says to Alexander Hamilton in the Hamilton play uh, in this amazing song called One Last Time. Everyone will sit upon their own vine and fig tree. Anyway, 
you can watch, listen to it. It sounds way better than me. And, um, but I love that line. And uh, which, by the way, um, I read a 900-page biography on Washington, and that was one of his favorite passages of Scripture that he would quote. But the second reason why it's important is that this phrase is actually a quotation from the book of 1 Kings chapter 4. And this is very important. It's a picture of what life was like under the reign of Solomon. Because here's what you have to understand. One of the titles of the Messiah is that the Messiah would be the son of David. And so one of the things that the ancient Jews and rabbis would do is that they would look at the actual son of David, which was Solomon, and they believed that there would be characteristics of the reign of Solomon, the personality of Solomon, the actions of Solomon that would uh, look much like the Messiah, and that would be one of the ways that you would be able to know who the Messiah is. So in 1 Kings chapter 4, you'll see it up on the screen, it says, during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba, Dan was in the north, Beersheba in the south, they lived in safety. Everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Solomon's reign was so good that everyone prospered, everyone was safe, and everyone lived in the land in peace. And Micah is telling us that in the Messiah's reign, in the kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus, that will fulfill that promise and exceed what Solomon had done because, of course, the Messiah's reign is everlasting. The rest of the chapter, of chapter four, is it outlines the beauty of the kingdom of God and, and you can read about it and you'll see that it keeps doing this phrase, in that day, in that day being the day of the kingdom. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago when we studied Joel, you know that uh, we talked about what it looks like when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. And it's this beautiful picture of those who feel marginalized and have no voice. They're gonna have more than just a voice. They're gonna have strength and influence. There isn't gonna be any more division. There won't be us versus them. Israel will be one united nation symbolizing people being united under the reign of King Jesus. And the Lord is the one who leads them, protects them, and establishes them. Now, the question then arises, well, where is this leader, this anointed one? So they're like, where does this Messiah gonna come from? How are we gonna know? And the assumption is Jerusalem. The assumption is where all the kings of Israel reigned. It's where all the kings of Israel lived and it's where all the kings of Israel were from. Jerusalem was and is the center of Jewish life in Israel. And Micah says, no, God is gonna do something a little bit different. And so in Micah chapter five, he says this in verse two. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruled in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. If you pause there, uh, this is the verse that we quote, right? Micah comes out every Christmas, you know, oh, little town of Bethlehem, and uh, he shows up on Christmas cards and all that. And this is the verse that tells us that the Messiah, this ruler that we're talking about, would be born in Bethlehem. And, and Micah tells us that more than 700 years before it happened. Now, we know that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. David was from Bethlehem, but this is telling us that he would actually be born in Bethlehem. And here's what you need to know about Bethlehem, is that Bethlehem is a little nothing town that's about six miles south of Jerusalem. In fact, there's two times in the Bible where pretty much all of the cities 
in Israel are named. In Joshua chapter 10 and Nehemiah chapter 11, all the towns and cities uh, are named. And Bethlehem is left off the list both times simply because it was just, it was so small and insignificant, you just didn't even mention it. And even today, uh, the city of Jerusalem has grown so much, it kind of envelops uh, the city of Bethlehem. But it takes center stage at Christmas time because wise men showed up. Wise men came to Jerusalem because they were following a star. And, and once again, the phrase, and once again, I read the New King James and um, the New King James translation translates it at, as wise men. Most translations translate it as wise men. And it's kind of unfortunate because we just think it's like, oh, you know, these like philosophers or something. Um, that's not, the Greek word that's translated wise men is the term magi, which is a Greek word that refers to priests that the Persians had in their, in their culture. They came from the East. They were part of a group of people who studied the stars. Now, that doesn't mean that they were uh, astrologers or they were checking horoscopes. They were people who studied the stars and interpreted dreams. That's who Magi were. And we get an introduction to them about 600 years before the Christmas story. We learn about a guy named Daniel. And you read about him. He's one of the major prophets, Daniel is. And Daniel is taken to Babylon when uh, Israel and later Judah are taken over by the Babylonians. And Daniel is this godly young man. God gives him favor with the king. And the king has a couple of dreams. And the second dream that he has in Daniel chapter four, he has this dream. Only Daniel is able to interpret it. And he gets this new title. And I want to read it to you out of Daniel chapter four. It says, at last Daniel came in before me and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. Chief of the magicians has nothing to do with, well, he had this card trick that he did, and he's able to take a bunny and pull it out of a hat. Uh, it refers to, in Hebrew, that term chief of the magicians is two words, rab Magi, and that is chief magi. And this begins to answer the question for us, what do these non-Jewish astrologers care about a savior being born 600 miles away? It's possible that Daniel told them about the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And as they experienced the power of God through his ability to interpret dreams, he told them about a passage of scripture that would change their lives. In the book of Numbers, there's a prophecy about another prophet who has this prophecy about the Messiah. And here's what he says in Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, they knew this prophecy and they see this star that was different than any other star that they had seen. And so the Magi, these philosophers, these uh, astrologers, they are following to find this king who has been born. And they bring him three very poignant gifts. As you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and gold because he was a king, frankincense because he was a priest, and myrrh is a burial spice, which means he was going to die. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've ever gotten a gift like that, like a gift that kind of speaks something else. And, and you know, I, I get that occasionally. You know, a couple years ago, my wife did that. Um, I had a, a Christmas, she's like, what do you want for Christmas? I gave her a Christmas list. And when Christmas came, she bought me a weight bench that I did not ask for. 
And I'm like, okay, that's weird. And then the next year, she bought me free weights to go with the weight bench, which by the way, was not on my list. And then the weight after she bought, the year after, she bought me a heart monitor. And, and, I, and I'm like, I don't know, whatever, she, if she knows something I don't, uh, the message is received, right? Because, you know, you give a gift because you kind of believe something about the person. So, um, and by the way, in Isaiah chapter 60, it talks about the rule and reign of the Messiah. And it tells us, and, and I, this is in your notes, but you can write this down. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, it says that we will come and bring gifts to the Messiah of gold and frankincense. Gold because he's a king, frankincense because he's a priest, but we don't give him myrrh because he already died for us and it won't happen again. So, and I know it's a lot of content to share, but I mean, what does all of this mean? Um, three things for sure. When it comes to, if we want to be people of influence in our culture, if we want to be people of influence um, in society, in our circle of friends and sphere of influence, I mean, who do, what, what do we need if we really want to be influential? And, and the first is this, is that uh, we need both love and truth for us to change and for others to change. Listen, truth without love is brutal and love without truth is hypocrisy. But truth that is spoken in love is what we need. Because the closer that you are with a person and the longer that you know them, the deeper the conversations and even the stronger the truth that you can share with them. So several years ago, I was at the gym and I know you're like, wow, it, yeah, it looks like it's been several years since you've been at the gym. So I was uh, at the gym and I'm on the treadmill. And so I'm running on the treadmill and this guy uh, shows up on the treadmill next to me and he starts running. Now, the guy had been working out for a while, at least it looked like, because he was all sweaty when he showed up. And um, the guy smelled so bad. And once again, I know that you work out, you smell, but it was, it, and I, I, you got to understand something about me. I can't smell anything. Uh, I, I'll, I'll buy my wife flowers and she'll be like, they smell so nice. I'll stick my nose in the flower and I can't smell anything. So I tell people that my nose pretty much exists just to hold up my glasses. And uh, so anyway, but I could smell this. And that's the problem is I can really only smell bad things. But I smelled this guy's BO. It was so, I mean, it, it, it's like if you could bottle it, you could use it as like an alternative to smelling salts because that could probably wake the dead. Um, well, anyway, I'm... I'm, a few minutes go by and I'm still kind of choking on the smell, but I can't leave because if I leave after the guy showed up, he's going to think that I'm leaving because of him. And so now it's just, now I'm in a weird place. I want to leave, but I can't leave and I should leave. But if I do, I don't want the guy to be insulted because maybe he realizes that he smells, but there's nothing he can do. Anyway, I've concocted this whole thing in my mind and the guy's wife shows up, at least I think it was his wife, and she gives him a bottle of water. And she says, honey, you smell. And I, because sometimes I say things and I don't think, she, I'm running and she says, honey, you smell. And I said, testify. And, uh, and they both look at me and I had headphones in. And so, and I'm realizing I just said that out loud. So I, I was, I, I, I don't know. I just started acting like I was singing a song and I'm like, testify. Lord, oh yeah. And, and, and anyway, that kind of, so anyway, if you ever get, say something that you don't mean, just start singing. That's really the moral of the story. So, but here's the point. If I had turned to the guy and been like, hey man, I just want you to know you stink. Um, a fight probably would have broken out and, and, uh, or at least uh, maybe him using me as a punching bag and, and probably rightly so. 
But his wife was able to say something that I couldn't because of the level of relationship. You see, this is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says this. You'll see it on the screen or in your notes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. You see, we talk about speaking the truth in love, but the, really the next three words are the most important. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow. That's the point. When we speak truth to each other in a loving way, we grow. Micah says that he is filled with the spirit of God and his mission is to speak the truth to the people that he loved. And whoever it is that we speak to, people need to know that we love them before we speak truth or they're just not going to hear. And here's how you know they, they won't hear it because we won't hear it unless the person that's speaking to us, we know that that person loves us. Here's the second thing that's important to know if we want to be influential is that we need to use our position to help. Micah comes down hard on leaders, both spiritual and secular, who use their positions for their own purposes rather than helping. Now, the Old Testament in particular highlights four people, four types of people that are at risk. In fact, a few theologians call it the quartet of the vulnerable. And these are uh, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. That these are the four people that in, that in in the context of the Old Testament were the most vulnerable people in society. Widows had no social standing on that culture. Orphans didn't either. And both were subject to injustice because they had no means to bring the legal system to bear on their situation. Immigrants, and of course that would include those um, of similar or differing races, were regularly mistreated. And that's why God says, when you go into the land of promise, don't mistreat strangers or foreigners because you were once slaves in Egypt and you were mistreated. And here's why the Bible is so brilliant. is because no matter your economic status, somebody is worse off than you. No matter your race or ethnicity, there's someone else who is an outsider. No matter your gender, there's someone who's having trouble finding justice. And this is a message for all of us, not some of us. The message that is to every person who is a Christian, that we use the position that we have and the influence that we have to help someone. And you say, well, I mean, how do I, I, mean, how do, I do that? And uh, now let me just, if you're like, if you're living a middle-class life, right? Many of us are. So you stop by church. And you don't even have to walk inside. You, you go into, uh, out, you walk outside, you see one of these red uh, for the 954 bags, you fill it up with groceries, bring it back to church. Because as a church, we are committed to keeping this food pantry full at Sheridan House, which is a ministry we support at Calvary that serves single moms. Once again, a, a, a subset of society that once again struggles and once again, and we want to be there to help. This, it's so easy. This is an easy thing to do, to care. And it's like, okay, that's a real simple one, but what about some of the hard stuff? So let's talk about some of the hard stuff. Let's talk about uh, racial reconciliation. I don't know uh, if you are aware of this, um, but if you don't like people from other races, or you say you don't like immigrants, I can assure you, you are going to hate heaven. I can promise you. You're going to hate it because in heaven, in the kingdom of God, when we get these snapshots of heaven, 
Diversity is not tolerated. Diversity is celebrated. In fact, we get this snapshot in the book of Revelation. It says this in Revelation 7. Listen to it. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is why the best thing that we can do in our world when it comes to racial reconciliation is when God's people really start acting like God's people. Because listen, the cure for racism is the gospel. How do we fix this? The gospel. Because the gospel does what no ordinance or law or legislation can do. It can get to the heart and transform people at the cellular level. What do I mean by that? Uh, Tim Keller, who is a, a pastor, theologian, and author, and regularly writes and speaks about issues of uh, race and justice, he wrote uh, these words in a paper that he published. He said this, Galatians 2 provides a classic example of how the gospel changes our attitudes towards our own racial pride and cultural heritage. In Acts 10 and 11, God showed Peter that because salvation is by grace alone, anyone, regardless of race and culture, is equally lost in sin and equally loved in Christ. Peter says, this is the apostle Peter, God has shown me that I should no longer call any man impure or unclean. I now recognize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. That's from Acts chapter 10. He, uh, Keller goes on. He says, yet sometime later, the apostle Paul saw Peter refusing to eat with Gentile Christians. When confronting him about his racism, he did not say, you are breaking the rule against racism. Rather, he said Peter was not acting in line with the gospel. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. And then Keller goes on and he says, to act in line with the gospel is to draw out the implications of the gospel, that we are sinners saved by grace and live in conformity and consistency with that truth. Racial prejudice is wrong because it is a denial of the very principles of grace. It's a form of self-righteousness, a way to feel acceptable and worthwhile by our own merits. And one of the most common self-justifying systems is to convince ourselves that we are of superiority because of our own race or ethnicity. The gospel radically undermines all this. What's the last thing? The last thing is this, that God uses the seemingly insignificant to change the world. I, I want you to think about how God works. God never chooses the person that you would expect. He never chooses the oldest son, as is the order of things. Instead, God works through Abel, not through Cain and turns things on its head. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. He works through Judah, not Reuben. He chooses David, not his older brother. Uh, he, when God chooses a woman who's gonna bring salvation and blessing and deliverance into the world, he doesn't choose who you'd think. He chooses 
Rebecca, Jacob's mom. He chooses Hannah, Samuel's mom. He chooses Sarah, Isaac's mom. He chooses Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom. All women who weren't supposed to be able to have children. God chooses the older Sarah, not the fertile her, uh, Hagar. He chooses Leah, who was unloved, not the beautiful Rachel. You see, it's this picture like, why does God choose Bethlehem? It's because God's always been choosing Bethlehem. He doesn't choose Rome that was the center of power or Athens, Greece that was the center of philosophy and intellect. Not even Jerusalem, which was the center of religious life. He chooses the place that was seemingly insignificant. And if you think, oh, that's cool, God chooses the underdog, it, it's so much deeper than that. It's that God's salvation works in a counterintuitive way to the way that the world works. That's why throughout his ministry, the disciples of Jesus kept asking him, when are you going to declare yourself king? When are you going to take power and save the world? And over and over, he's trying to explain to them, I'm not going to take power to save the world. I'm going to lose all my power and die so I can save the world. You see, if you think that you're powerful and flawless and superior, you will find no need for Jesus and the gospel of Jesus will be of no use for you. Because he was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth, nowhere towns. But he grew up in Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth to save Bethlehem and Nazareth type of people. People who recognize their faults, their weakness and their poverty of spirit. And if you look and say, I mean, what, what's happening in our world? And you say, what, I mean, what in the world could I do? Here's the reality, you can't do everything, but you can do something. And the something that you do can change the world for someone else. Let's pray together. And Lord, we wanna thank you for that challenge that you give us, that every single one of us has the opportunity to leverage whatever influence we have for the sake of someone else. So God help us to be that. Help us to reflect who you are in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.